Former President Donald Trump has been told that he could soon be indicted on charges that he tried to hold on to power after losing the 2020 election. It's Wednesday, July 19th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Michigan's Attorney General has charged 16 people who allegedly falsely claimed that Trump won that state. Also this hour, the role the word woke is playing in the race for the Republican nominee for president and a controversial plan to send some migrants to so-called safe third countries is on track to become law in the UK. Plus, this summer's surprise box office hit is fueling controversy over conspiracy theories. It's being marketed to QAnon believers. It's being embraced by this community, and its leading actor is a huge part of the QAnon community. Mostly sunny in 80s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Israel's President Isaac Herzog will address a joint meeting of Congress today. Ahead of his speech, the House of Representatives has overwhelmingly passed a resolution reaffirming support for the state of Israel. As NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports, the vote came in the wake of a leading Democrat walking back comments that Israel is a, quote, racist state. The resolution, which passed with over 400 lawmakers backing the measure, declares that Israel is not a racist state. This comes after Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, who chairs the Congressional Progressive Caucus, referred to Israel in those terms over the weekend. She later apologized and walked back her comments, which came in response to pro-Palestinian protesters who interrupted a panel discussion. The GOP-introduced resolution passed a day before Israeli President Isaac Herzog is slated to address a joint meeting of Congress. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, the Capitol. The Senate is working on its version of the National Defense Authorization Act. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says negotiators from both parties made progress on the bill. After contentious debate, the House narrowly passed its version of the defense authorization bill last week. The House and DAA contains a number of provisions that will likely hit a roadblock in the Senate, including one that would reverse a Pentagon policy on abortion. Majority Leader Schumer is urging the Senate to work together on legislation that can pass. Both sides should defeat potentially toxic amendments and refrain from delaying the NDAA's passage. Ultimately, a conference committee will be appointed to resolve differences between the House and Senate versions of the bill. The panel would then send that combined measure back to both chambers for a vote. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Extreme heat is sticking around today in the south and southwest. Phoenix has surpassed its record of the number of days in a row with temperatures of more than 110 degrees. It's now entering a 20th day. Forecasters warn such excessive heat is dangerous for people who are outside for long periods of time. Zena Jones is homeless and living in Houston. She says she often looks for food or water from volunteers. We all need some help one way or another. If it's just uh, bringing some food, some water, because you know it's kind of hot out here. (laughs) But as long as I stay under this tree, I'm okay. The National Weather Service says that dangerous temperatures will last throughout the weekend and into early next week. Searchers in Pennsylvania are still trying to find two very young children who were swept away in a flash flood last weekend. It happened north of Philadelphia. The children's mother is one of five people who drowned. The National Hurricane Center says a tropical storm is sweeping south of Hawaii. Tropical storm Calvin is not expected to make landfall on the Big Island. You're listening to NPR News. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. All the rain and flooding we've seen this month in Massachusetts and across New England can be linked to climate change. Greg Carbon is the chief of forecast operations with the National Weather Service. He says the extreme rainfall we've seen used to happen every few decades, but now climate change is altering the atmosphere. The warmer the air is, the more water vapor it can contain under the right conditions. With a one or two degree increase in global temperature, we are seeing the efficiency of these rainfall events occur more frequently. According to federal weather officials, last month was the warmest June on record for the planet. The first half of July also marked some of the hottest days ever recorded. The Massachusetts State House will remain closed today following an apparent electrical fire yesterday afternoon. Boston Fire officials say the fire was confined to the basement. No one was hurt. Investigators say they're keeping the building closed because of concerns over elevated carbon monoxide levels. A Boston City Councilor is expected in court today. Kendra Laura drove her car into a house in Jamaica Plain last month. She was cited for driving with a revoked license. The car she was driving was also unregistered and uninspected. Her seven-year-old son was hurt in the crash. A report shows Laura was driving at at least twice the speed limit at the time. Laura apologized to constituents but tells the Boston Globe she has no specific comment on the case. East Boston residents now have a state-of-the-art emergency department in their neighborhood. The East Boston Neighborhood Health Center unveiled the rebuilt facility this week. The center's reopening coincides with the closure of the Sumner Tunnel connecting East Boston to downtown. State Representative Adrian Madero says the upgrades are a necessary resource for the community he represents. There's always going to be a role for those hospitals and and issues that cannot be addressed uh, locally here in East Boston. But to the extent possible that we can prevent someone from having to navigate that horrible traffic and the challenges that uh, the closure of the Sumner Tunnel presents, that's really important. The facility also serves Chelsea, Revere, Everett and Winthrop. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio and the arts. The Red Sox lost to the A's 3-0 last night in Oakland. Boston managed just five hits in the losing effort. The teams will play the rubber match of their three-game series this afternoon. Carlos Heel and George Petrovich will represent the New England Revolution in the MLS All-Star Game. The MLS team will take on the British Premier League team Arsenal tonight in Washington, D.C. An air quality alert remains in effect for the Worcester area. It'll be mostly sunny today and in the upper 80s, partly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will be in the 60s, sunny again tomorrow and in the 80s. Right now it's 72 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California.
And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Donald Trump faces federal charges related to his handling of classified documents. And now he may be facing new charges in connection with efforts to overturn the 2020 election. We'll talk shortly with a former federal prosecutor about that. But first, there are now related charges in Michigan. Yesterday, the Democratic state attorney general announced charges against 16 fake electors. These were people who submitted paperwork to the federal government falsely saying that they were Michigan's true electors and that Donald Trump won the state, even though he clearly lost Michigan in 2020. To talk about all this, we have Colin Jackson of the Michigan Public Radio Network. Good morning, Colin. Good morning. So what do we know about these charges? Well, there are 16 defendants total. Uh, they each face eight felony charges that mostly have to do with forgery. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, they stem from this moment in December of 2020 when Attorney General Dana Nessel said the 16 defendants gathered in the basement of what was then the Republican Party headquarters. They allegedly signed a memo falsely stating that they were Michigan's official Electoral College members when they were not and tried to award Michigan's Electoral College votes to former President Donald Trump, uh, even though he lost the state hand. Uh, A group tried to drop that memo off at the state capitol where the state's real electors were gathering, but they were turned away. Um, But despite that, Nestle says they did still transmit that memo to the National Archives and former Vice President Mike Pence, uh, hoping he'd overturn the election results. Uh, Here's Nestle, a Democrat, discussing it yesterday. Undoubtedly, there will be those who claim these charges are political in nature. But where there is overwhelming evidence of guilt in respect to multiple crimes, the most political act I could engage in as a prosecutor would be to take no action at all. Hmm. What do we know about the people charged? They range in age from uh, 55 to 82. The name that jumped out immediately to me was Michonne Maddock. Uh, she's a prominent Trump ally and until recently was the Michigan Republican Party co-chair. Uh, her husband is a current Republican state representative who's part of our House Freedom Caucus. I want to note he was not charged or mentioned anywhere in the AG's announcement. Uh, but there are also a few elected officials on the list. Uh, those include a West Michigan city mayor named Kent Vanderwood, uh, Metro Detroit suburb clerk named Stan Grote, Uh, In Michigan, local clerks actually help administer elections. This just happened yesterday. So, so far, I haven't seen much reaction yet, though. Um, To the charges. So that may be coming. Now, Michigan isn't the only place where there were fake electors. This happened in several other swing states where there are also investigations. But if you, Colin, could just put Michigan in a national context when it comes to efforts to overturn a legitimate election in the U.S. in 2020. Michigan was one of the centerpieces of the so-called Stop the Steal movement after it became apparent Trump lost to President Biden by more than 150,000 votes. Uh, We saw Trump's attorneys and allies kind of flood the courts with lawsuits trying to overturn the results. Uh, You may remember the nickname given to them, the Kraken. Each of those challenges were thrown out, though. Election denialism, though, has taken hold in the Republican Party institution here. We've seen party leadership largely be at the forefront of wrongly claiming Trump won. Uh, We've also seen infighting continue uh, as it relates to that. So what should we expect next now for the 16 people charged in the fake elector plot? For those charged now, there hasn't been a a date set yet for their arraignment. uh, But Attorney General Nessel does say more people could be charged. So these are the first charges we've seen of this kind. We'll see if other states follow suit. That's Colin Jackson of the Michigan Public Radio Network. Colin, thank you. Thank you. 
Former President Donald Trump says he has just a few days to report to a grand jury. He says he's received a letter from special counsel Jack Smith that he is a target in the federal probe into the January 6th attack on the Capitol and efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Let's discuss this with former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz. Welcome back to the program. Good morning. Good morning. So why did the Justice Department send this letter to Trump? What would it mean? Well, to give you some perspective, the U.S. Attorney's Manual identifies three categories of persons in connection with a federal criminal investigation. If you're you're identified as a witness, it means you're not going to be charged in a case. It's sort of like you're standing on a street corner, there's a car accident, and the police want to know whether the light was yellow or red Mm. when the car entered the intersection. Then there's something called a subject category, and that means you may be indicted. It means prosecutors are looking at your conduct. They're not saying you did anything wrong, but they're also not saying that you may not have committed a crime. But a target letter is something wholly different. That really is defined as when the grand jury uh, or the prosecutor have substantial evidence linking you to criminal activity, and the prosecutor views you as a putative defendant, which essentially means the only thing standing between you and an indictment is a grand jury who has to vote in favor of the indictment. And when prosecutors present an indictment to a grand jury, they almost always return the indictment. So would a letter like this indicate which aspects of the investigation the Justice Department would be pursuing with regard to Trump? I mean, this mentioned both Jan 6 and the 2020 election. Um, So does that mean he's a target for both? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, we haven't seen the letter itself. It usually identifies some federal criminal charges that the government believes that the putative defendant may have violated. But the letter is sent really for a number of reasons. It's sent to prompt plea discussions in some cases. It gives the defense counsel one last shot to try to convince the government not to bring charges against their client. But it also allows the target of the investigation the opportunity to testify before the grand jury directly to try to convince them not to return an indictment against them. In this case, I do not think we would expect to see former President Trump take advantage of that opportunity and Mm. appear before the grand jury. He didn't do it in the Mar-a-Lago case. And defense counsel generally counsel against their clients testifying before the grand jury because anything they say in that grand jury testimony can later be used against them in a criminal trial. So Trump says this kind of target letter always means arrest and indictment. And it sounds like you generally agree with that, uh, a letter like this. Yeah, that's absolutely right. If you get a target letter, it's almost certain that you're going to be indicted at some point. The question is simply a matter of when. Now, you said a letter like this has to be backed up by a lot of evidence. I mean, what does this say about what the Justice Department might have? Well, it certainly means that the prosecutor believes, in this case, the special counsel, Jack Smith, believes that he has probable cause that a crime has been committed. And I think the, the, the fact that there is a target letter gives us some indication that it's obviously related to the January 6th events. But beyond that, we don't know what the charges will be. Uh, we mm-hmm. also don't know whether others may also be charged in connection with the same alleged crime here, although it appears that nobody else has received a target letter. So we're just going to have to wait and see what are and who else, if anybody else, is charged along with former President Trump. 
Now, this isn't the only legal case that Trump is dealing with. The investigations by special counsel Jack Smith also produced the indictment on charges that Trump kept and then hid classified documents at his Florida state. Trump's lawyers asked the judge yesterday to delay those proceedings. Do prosecutors at the Justice Department typically collaborate with one another or take any cues from the other investigations involving Trump? Well, they should cooperate with one another Mm -hmm. and they should try to coordinate this because obviously a defendant could only face one criminal charge at a time. And so it will be up to the the Department of Justice to make a decision as to which of the federal cases they want to pursue first with regard to some of the state charges like the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and if state charges are brought in Georgia in connection with alleged interference with the election down there. Mm -hmm. That's something that is really left up to the opportunity for federal and state prosecutors to try to work together, although there are no set rules as to how that exactly is going to work. So that is really left up to the discretion of the various prosecutors and whether or not they can work together and decide which case is going to be tried first. In the few seconds we have left, Special Counsel Jack Smith was just appointed in November. From a prosecutor's standpoint, how quick does this inquiry feel? Well, it's moving along fairly quickly, but then again, it really has to. This is a race against the political clock with the upcoming primaries and Mm -hmm. the upcoming election. And so I think Jack Smith is moving as quickly as he can here. This is an area with January 6th and with the documents case where a lot of evidence was out there. And I think he had the opportunity to move very swiftly to bring these charges. Former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz. Robert, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Okay, let's have a conversation about birds, angry birds. Well, maybe angry birds is a bit too harsh. (laughs) Protective birds may be more fitting, although both sound scary to me. Seems birds are making their nests with hazards like metal and spikes. Biggest nest we found, a nest that included more than 1,500 nasty metal anti-bird spikes. That's Auke Florian Heemstra. He's a biologist at the Naturalist Biodiversity Center in Leiden. He and his team visited the roof of a Belgian hospital that gave the birds what they needed to turn their nest into a bunker. There were a lot of bird spikes, but all the bird spikes closest to the nest, they were gone, and just a trail of glue was present. Heemstra said some smart birds are using the stuff that humans use to shoo them away and instead are creating protective bowls over their heads. But yeah, I think the magpie ripped them off the roof and used them in its own nest. We have examples of crows using them and examples of magpies using them. And so this is within the family of the corvids, and those are very smart birds. And what exactly are these birds borrowing from the humans around them? Barbed wire, but also, and I think this is the funniest example, knitting needles. Okay, sounds extremely uncomfortable to live there. Right, let alone raise baby birds there. But Heemstra says these nests may be more welcoming to bird families than you might think. So the whole outside of the nest is covered with these bird spikes, but within the nest is this very safe place made with soft material. So the young ones are safe, but I think the parents may struggle a little bit to handle the material. So maybe one of them smart birds can help me design my next home, because one thing's for sure, you will not need locks if you got barbed wire.
This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, the U.N. is criticizing a controversial plan that's poised to become law in Britain. It would keep migrants without documentation from landing on British shores and applying for asylum, instead sending them to countries like Rwanda. It's 719. A million miles from Earth, the James Webb Space Telescope has spent the last year peering deep into the cosmos and back in time. This is, oh my gosh, more than we could have expected. Now we know for sure that it is much better than originally planned. We'll talk with scientists now combing through the James Webb Space Telescope's first year of discoveries. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mostly sunny today with a high near 88. Tonight it grows partly cloudy and temperatures fall to lows around 68. Tomorrow, mostly sunny again with a high near 82. Right now it's 72 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's Gummies, Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Meta, the owner of Facebook, released a large language model yesterday. That's the kind of computer code that powers chatbots, artificial intelligence that talks or writes or even seems to think, though not really. Soon after the announcement, we informed an independent researcher named Simon Willison. Wow, I've missed that. I was on another call and I've missed that news. So that's exciting. So exciting he whistled. Researchers were already using the model called Llama. Meta is now licensing companies to use an updated model, Llama 2, to build their own products. It's open source, which means anyone can copy it, use it, or change it. I'm assuming this means that we can build our own things on top of Llama 2. Wow. This is enormous. Researchers we talked with differed on just how enormous. Other open source models are already available, and some researchers don't love Meta's version. But the release by this giant company and the invitation to anyone else to make of it what they will is another step in the spread of AI. Does this technology scare you? Oh, totally. Absolutely. Yes, very much so. 
We talked over Lama 2 and its implications with Nick Clegg. He's a one-time British politician, now Meta's president of global affairs. So you can ask these huge large language models, uh, you know, write me a draft of an essay about the, uh, you know, Napoleonic Wars Mm -hmm. or a first draft of my wedding speech. That's what the large language model of another company, OpenAI, can do. This year, academic researchers took Meta's free model and created their own chatbots. Nick Clegg says that's just the beginning of what companies may try. I don't know. Credit card companies could improve anomalous patterns of information and fraud analysis to help protect consumers. I could easily imagine these models being used by medical professionals to improve diagnoses by identifying abnormalities or analyze medical images such as x-rays, CT scans, and MRIs. I was talking with a computer programmer who said that one of the most fascinating but almost creepy realities of these large language models is that the people who have created them literally don't know what they're capable of. Is that how you see it? So it is true to say that these large language models, as they are currently built, they, they, it's a slightly spooky verb, and you're right, the experts say this, they do hallucinate in the sense that you ask them something and it'll just sort of spin off. It'll just keep making more and more connections. Nick Clegg is alluding to one of the risks of large language models. They can suck up language and ideas from the internet and write them back out like a person, but they don't know what they're saying. They may give you true information or false information delivered just as convincingly. Experts consider that just the beginning of potential mischief, which is why Sam Altman of that other company, OpenAI, has appealed for Congress to regulate his industry. I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong. Uh, and we want to be vocal about that. We want to work with the government. Meta's Nick Clegg says his company is not opposed to regulation, but it's taking a differing approach than some other firms. How does Meta profit from giving this away? Well, yeah, I, I should stress, you know, we're not... We're not we're a company, but we're not a charity. It's in our interest because we think that this will help galvanize or help set in motion a kind of flywheel of, of innovation, which we ourselves can then incorporate into our own products. Did it give you any pause when Jeffrey Hinton, who's considered one of the fathers of AI, began raising concerns about it, not necessarily about the end of the world, but about AI being used to create better and better fake videos and other disinformation or being used to power robots that might kill people on the battlefield, that sort of thing? Oh, absolutely. I think that people like Jeff Hinton or Joshua Bengio, they are two of the three so-called godfathers of AI. The third, Jan LeCun, is our chief AI data scientist. If you listen closely to Jeff Hinton and Yosha Bengio, what they are principally talking about is those systemic risks which may arise with sort of supersized, super intelligent AI models in the future, which develop a kind of identity and autonomy of their own. Crucially, if they develop the ability to replicate themselves, then you really are, in a sense, crossing a Rubicon. The models we're releasing today don't have any of that at all. But what's worth remembering, particularly when it comes to issues like deep fakes and misinformation, is that whilst, yes, these technologies might allow people to be more creative in generating deep fakes, in generating misinformation, AI is also the sword and the shield that companies like Meta use to defeat the distribution of exactly that kind of nefarious and unwelcome content. 
I want to note that Llama 2 users, companies or other people who license this and then begin using this power to make their own products, have to sign off on an acceptable use policy and tell you, tell Meta, they're not going to commit any violence or terrorism, no crimes, no promotion of people committing self-harm, no guns, no illegal drugs, no fraud, no disinformation. They have to promise all that. But if someone does those things, would you know? Well, it's like any criminal activity. Criminals will always try and hide their activity. I mean, that, that is the case with, any, uh, with anyone who wants to break the law, break the rules. It, it, it's an adversarial space. But would you have an awareness of how your technology is being used once you let it out into the wild? Yes. I think one of the virtues of open innovation is that it just becomes much, much more obvious to people. And you have an army of experts who are much more equipped than they would be otherwise to really be able to trace how these technologies are being deployed and, and, and used by others, either for good or for bad purposes. Nick Clegg insists his company is conscious of the risks. Earlier this year, Meta announced a product called Voicebox, which could mimic the human voice but then the company decided to keep it to itself. And we didn't actually uh, open source that because we felt there were some real perils in people using that innovative experimental AI tool for what might have been you know, illicit or illegal purposes. Just so we're clear, I am talking to Nick Clegg and not some, some voice box produced voice. Is that right? <laughs> that is correct. I can assure you that. He's president for global affairs at Meta. The company released a large language model yesterday, the latest of many entries in an accelerating field. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition. A ruling by the Illinois Supreme Court means that state will become the first to completely eliminate cash bail in its prison system. It's 729. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind if you miss something. Find it in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Another day of extreme heat is expected in more than a dozen states. Heat warnings and advisories are in effect from Southern California to Southeast Georgia. Josh Weiss is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. He says while triple-digit temperatures are the issue in the Southwest... In the South Central and Southeast parts of the country, it's that heat index that causes the, the larger concerns because that humidity, you can't sweat enough to really offset that. Phoenix hit 110 yesterday for a record 19th straight day. In Michigan, the state's attorney general is filing felony charges against 16 Republicans stemming from the state's presidential election in 2020. The 16 are accused of acting as fake electors for then-President Trump and submitting false certificates. 
Colin Jackson with the Michigan Public Radio Network says the Attorney General alleges it was a coordinated effort with GOP officials in other states. They each face eight felony charges that mostly have to do with forgery. They stem from this moment in December of 2020 when Attorney General Dana Nessel said the 16 defendants gathered in the basement of what was then the Republican Party headquarters, they allegedly signed a memo falsely stating that they were Michigan's official Electoral College members when they were not and tried to award Michigan's Electoral College votes to Trump uh, even though he lost the state handily. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. City leaders in Boston could soon pass a plan to increase the number of affordable units required in housing developments. WBUR's Lainey Roxdale has details. Mayor Michelle Wu's proposal ups the requirement for affordable housing from 13 percent to 17 percent in new construction. Developers say it could deter new projects and make funding more difficult. But some affordable housing advocates don't think it goes far enough. Boston University lecturer Felix Zemmel says incentives could make the plan more effective. Provide for increased density so that developers can build more affordable housing. Allow them to build higher, potentially. Those kinds of things go a long way towards the partnership between developers and the city. The plan still needs approval from City Council and the Zoning Commission. For 90.9 WBUR... I'm Lainey Ruxtell. A four-year-old boy is dead after a hit-and-run crash in Hyde Park. Police say the boy was hit last night on Wood Avenue. They're looking for the driver who left the scene. The boy's name has not been released. All of the beaches on Plum Island are closed today because of high levels of bacteria in the water. Officials say people can still visit the beaches as long as they stay out of the water. They say testing will be done again tomorrow and today. The beaches will reopen once bacteria levels drop. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. The Red Sox were shut out by the A's 3-0 last night in Oakland. The teams will wrap up their three-game series this afternoon. An air quality alert remains in effect for the Worcester area today. We'll have mostly clear skies and high temperatures in the upper 80s. Tonight, clouds move in and it dips into the 60s. Mostly sunny tomorrow with highs in the low 80s. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. A plan to detain asylum seekers and others who get to Britain by boat and send them to Rwanda or another, quote, safe third country is about to become law. The passage of what's known as the Illegal Migration Bill is a win for U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who's vowed to stop migrants from crossing the English Channel on small boats. Some 45,000 people did so last year. Joining us now is Shabia Mantu with the United Nations Refugee Agency. Uh, UN officials insist the legislation is at odds with the UK's obligations under international law and that it'll have profound consequences for people in need of international protection. Can you tell us uh, what the main concerns are raised by this bill? Look, the the concerns are are manifold. Uh, Firstly, it will extinguish access to asylum for anyone arriving irregularly, um, having passed through a country, however briefly, where they didn't face persecution. So it will bar them basically from presenting refugee protection or other human rights claims, no matter how compelling their circumstances are. And it will require their removal to another country with no guarantee that they will be able to access protection there. So it will have a profound effect on the rights of people. They will be left in limbo or or really... uh, at risk. And at the same time, it also undermines the entire refugee protection regime of which uh, the UK and many other countries have been ardent supporters of, but will also send a worrying signal to the rest of the world. In fact, 76% uh, of the world's refugees are hosted in low and middle income countries. They're not hosted in the most resourced countries like the UK. So it's really worrying that this effort is really undermining that whole uh, regime as well. We got a statement from UK's Home Office. I wanted to read a part of it to you. Nothing in the bill requires the government to act incompatibly with international law and says it seeks to deter and prevent people from making dangerous, illegal and unnecessary journeys. What's your response? Well, we've shared our concerns uh, with the UK government. Uh, We hold our view that this uh, legislation, given that it will extinguish access to asylum, it isn't compliant with uh, the obligations required under international law. Um, And there are other ways to really address uh, some of these issues. We we share the concerns about the the loss of life and the the risks and desperation that people are faced with, but this is not the solution. And this will, in fact, only exacerbate the risk and dangers uh, that people will face. You mentioned other ways to address issues. What would they be? Well, these uh, efforts include the ensuring that there are expedited and fast and fair asylum processing, because not everyone will be entitled uh, to international protection, but those that do and that will need it must be afforded uh, that right. They must be protected, but there can also be swift returns of those that are not in need of protection. But we also need to increase uh, the availability and accessibility of safer pathways for people to be able to come uh, to the UK and other countries, and also to combat human trafficking and smuggling. But there are a whole raft of of proposals and solutions uh, which we've put forward and we hope that they will be looked at. One last thing, just about a few seconds here. When he was prince, King Charles had been opposed to sending asylum seekers back to Rwanda. I know the bill still needs his signature and while it's likely he'd sign it, are you hoping he'll try to somehow use his influence on this? Well, we, we can't speculate, but we do know that there is ongoing judicial intervention or proceedings. So we hope that there will be a determination, but at the end of the day, that uh, a really humane and compliant approach to protecting the rights of refugees and asylum seekers will be maintained. Shabia Mantu is with the UN Refugee Agency. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having us.
The film Sound of Freedom is this summer's surprise box office hit, raking in more than $85 million in ticket sales since its release on July 4th. Former President Donald Trump is hosting a screening today at his New Jersey golf club. But as NPR's Shannon Vaughn reports, the movie is being criticized as a vehicle for conspiracy theories and misleading depictions of human trafficking. Sound of Freedom is a thriller about a former federal agent rescuing children from exploitation. Why are you doing it? Because God's children are not for sale. The film, based on a real-life, controversial anti-trafficking activist, is being heavily promoted in conservative media. It caught the wider world's eye when it earned almost as much money on its release day as the latest Indiana Jones movie. And a big part of its success is an appeal from its star, Jim Caviezel, who comes on screen at the end urging viewers to buy more tickets so other people can see it. Let's make this film a historic event and the start, the end of child trafficking. Caviezel is drawing attention to the film in other ways. For years, he's been a prominent promoter of the false, violent QAnon conspiracy theory. Specifically, the claim that an international cabal of elites is abusing and killing children to extract a substance called adrenochrome. These wild claims have become deeply enmeshed with narratives about child trafficking, and Caviezel's pushing them on his press tour. Here's a recent exchange with former Trump advisor Steve Bannon about what's driving demand for children. Adrenochrome, uh, the whole adrenochrome empire, this is a big deal. Now, Sound of Freedom itself does not contain any references to adrenochrome or other conspiracy theories. It was actually filmed before the QAnon phenomenon started. Angel Studios, the film's distributor, publicly rejects any association with conspiracies. So do Tim Ballard, the former federal agent Caviezel's character is based on, and his organization, Operation Underground Railroad. They all declined or didn't respond to my interview requests. But recently, Ballard claimed adrenochrome harvesting is real. And his statements and Caviezel's have an impact, says Mike Rothschild, who wrote a book about QAnon. It's being marketed to QAnon believers. It's being embraced by this community. And its leading actor is a huge part of the QAnon community. Setting aside the QAnon cloud, the rescue story the film tells is also a lightning rod. Many of the missions Operation Underground Railroad describes are hard to verify or contain significant misrepresentations, according to reporting by Tim Marchman and Anna Merlin at Vice News. They're not whole cloth falsehoods, but they reassemble things that are true or close to being true into stories that are just wildly and completely different from what actually happened. Operation Underground Railroad has denied Vice's findings. On screen, Sound of Freedom goes even further in fictionalizing Ballard's story, showing him single-handedly taking on a crime syndicate. The studio acknowledges taking, quote, creative liberties. But these popular depictions raise concerns among anti-trafficking experts. They say they offer an incomplete portrait of a real and urgent problem. Elizabeth Campbell is co-director of the University of Michigan's Human Trafficking Clinic. Because trafficking is so varied and does span so many populations, it really tests our brain to not not distill it down to some sort of, this is what a common victim of human trafficking looks like. And by doing that, I think we make actual victims of human trafficking more invisible and more vulnerable to exploitation. And she says they divert people's energy, resources, and policy proposals away from where they're most needed. 
Shannon Bond, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR's Morning Edition, a recap of the first pretrial hearing in the classified documents case involving former President Trump. The judge in the case says she'll decide when to schedule the trial soon. In your forecast, upper 80s, upper 80s today under mostly sunny skies. It turns mostly cloudy tonight and falls into the 60s. A bit cooler tomorrow in the low 80s and mostly sunny. Right now it's 73 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. The closure of the Sumner Tunnel isn't just an inconvenience to travelers. It's costing rideshare drivers income. Some drivers tell the Boston Globe traffic delays caused by the closure mean they're making fewer trips to and from Logan Airport. They say that earns them less money overall. But according to Uber, rides to and from Logan are actually up compared to this time last year. There has been a slight drop since the start of the summer closure. Boston-based Patronics will soon be under new leadership. The customer engagement company appointed Jeff Hinman as its new CEO. Hinman currently serves on Patronics's board. He'll take over for founder Andrew Robbins, who will remain with the company as its executive chairman. Former patrons of the Poor House in the Back Bay have a chance to get their hands on parts of the bar's history. That includes vintage signs, tables, and other memorabilia. The items will go on sale today in an online auction. The Poor House closed at the start of the pandemic in 2020. It's 744. July 19th marks 60 years since civil rights marchers took to the streets of America's Georgia to protest segregation. After being arrested, one group of black girls disappeared for 45 days. We did a lot of stuff to pass the time away. We sang freedom songs. We prayed. We did little hand games and we talked. Some kids cried. Hear that story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Zoom. Zoom One is designed for AI-powered collaboration across phone, video, messaging, whiteboards, and work apps, keeping global teams connected. One platform to connect. Zoom One. From Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldid. And I'm A. Martinez. Illinois will be the first state to completely eliminate its cash bail system. Under the Safety Act passed last year, judges across Illinois will not require those charged with a crime to post bail in order to leave jail while they await trial. However, those who are considered to be a threat to the public or likely to flee will be required to stay in jail. 
The new law will go into effect in September. Now, it was delayed by opponents who argued the new policy would put dangerous criminals on the streets. Sarah Stout is an attorney with the Illinois Network for Pretrial Justice and is the policy and advocacy manager at the Prison Policy Initiative. Uh, Sarah, the Illinois Fraternal Order of Police said the elimination of cash bail, quote, confirms Illinois status as the state of lawlessness and disorder. So, Sarah, for someone who's concerned about the impact of the new law, what would you tell them? Really, in terms of safety, nothing could be further from the truth. The reality is that there have been numerous national studies that have reviewed the claim that letting more people free pretrial would hurt public safety. And they've all found that there's just no connection between releasing more people pretrial and public safety. It's just not true that people who are released pretrial are causing a danger to our community. What is true is that pretrial jailing can actually increase the likelihood that someone will be rearrested in the future because it destabilizes their lives. They lose their employment, their housing, sometimes custody of their children. So really, jail makes us less safe. We should be using it only when it's absolutely necessary. So for the people then that are not in jail waiting their trial, uh, how will they, how will the courts ensure that they show up for their dates? Well, courts have lots of options. The first thing to understand is that most people do come back to their court dates and do remain arrest-free pretrial, like upwards of 80 or 90%. For when the court does have concerns about that, there's all sorts of options at the court's disposal. The easiest is they can give things like text message reminders just to make sure that people know when their court dates are. That's one of the most effective things to do. But there's also things like pretrial services, checking in with an officer to make sure that people are up to date on their court dates and are able to participate in their case. But why get rid of bail completely and, and or maybe do something like other states like New York, where they're eliminating bail for certain kinds of crimes? Well, because bail doesn't work. Money bail has never worked. What money bail does is it says the decision about who's going to be in jail is going to be about the, how much money is in your pocketbook. It's completely illogical. What we need is what we have now in Illinois, which is a system that actually looks at safety. It actually looks at whether someone poses a danger to another person. And that's the real criteria for who should be in jail and who needs to be free. And that's why victims' rights organizations in Illinois were some of the most, the loudest supporters of this law. And will this law, uh, to your understanding, be retroactive? In other words, people that are detained under the old policy, will they get the option to be out now? Everyone detained under the new policy or everyone detained currently will have a new hearing in front of a judge where a judge will make an individualized decision about whether that person will remain in jail or be released. All right. Sarah Stout is an attorney with the Illinois Network for Pre-Trial Justice. Sarah, thank you very much. Thank you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Coming up at 8.20 on WBMR's Morning Edition, non-unionized workers say they are struggling amidst strikes by writers and actors. It's 7.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. And Comcast Business 
providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. A million miles from Earth, the James Webb Space Telescope has spent the last year peering deep into the cosmos and back in time. This is, oh my gosh, more than we could have expected. Now we know for sure that it is much better than originally planned. We'll talk with scientists now combing through the James Webb Space Telescope's first year of discoveries. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Former President Donald Trump says he received a letter from the Justice Department indicating he could soon be indicted on charges related to efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Chinese President Xi Jinping is rejecting pressure from the U.S. to do more to address climate change. And in Phoenix, temperatures hit more than 110 degrees for a record 19th day in a row yesterday. Today's high is forecast to be 117. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. WBUR supporters include the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. Mostly sunny and upper 80s today, mostly cloudy and upper 60s tonight. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and low 80s. Right now, it's 74 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Woke is just four letters, but it has had a big impact on Republican politics ahead of the 2024 election. It's hard to avoid criticism of, quote, wokeness and wokeism among GOP presidential hopefuls. But what does it actually mean? As Domenico Montanaro reports, the term didn't arise out of the culture war. There's one word on the Republican presidential campaign trail that's hard to avoid. Now, this woke mind virus represents a war on merit. That's presidential hopeful and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis using a word woke. He's repeated over and over and over again and made central to his politics. We will fight the woke in the legislature. We will fight the woke in education. We will fight the woke in the businesses. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Our state is where woke goes to die. Republicans on the campaign trail are using it as something of a catch-all to criticize anything on the progressive side of the political spectrum they don't like, whether it's teaching about racism in schools or gender transition policies or even books and libraries they deem inappropriate. Not every candidate likes this focus. Here's North Dakota Republican Governor Doug Burgum on NBC's Meet the Press. I believe that the President of the United States has got a defined set of things they're supposed to work on, and it's not every culture war topic. But Burgum is in the minority in his party on this and has minimal support at this point. What about the frontrunner for the Republican nomination, former President Donald Trump? And I don't like the term woke because I hear woke, woke, woke. You know, it's like just a term that use half the people can't even define it. They don't know what it is. But that seems to be a new stance for Trump because he's used the word multiple times to criticize the left. In fact, just hours after making that statement, he used it repeatedly in a town hall on Fox News. There are a lot of things going on with our military, with the woke and all this nonsense. They're not, they're not learning to fight and protect us from some very bad people. They want to go woke. They want to go woke. But what does the word really mean? And where does it come from? It comes out of black culture. Elaine Richardson is a professor of literacy studies at The Ohio State University. In simple terms, it just means being politically conscious and aware. Like, 
Stay woke. The word has a long history. It was used in black protest songs dating back to the early 20th century, including by Huddy Ledbetter, better known as Leadbelly, the singer of the 1938 song Scottsboro Boys. Here's Ledbetter speaking about the song in what's believed to be the first audio recording of the use of the word woke, an old record, it's hard to hear, but he says in Alabama, be careful and stay woke. So I, I advise everybody to be a little careful when they go along through that, but stay woke, keep the eyes open. Be careful, stay woke, keep your eyes open. The Scottsboro Boys were nine black teenagers who were accused of raping two white girls in what is widely seen today as one of the worst cases of racist legal injustice. It helped spur the civil rights movement and loosely inspired the book and movie To Kill a Mockingbird. This case should never have come to trial. Again, here's Ohio State's Richardson. It comes out of the experience of black people, of knowing that you have to be conscious of the politics, um, race, class, gender, systemic racism, ways that society is stratified and not equal. The phrase came back into popular use in 2008 after Erica Badu's song, Master Teacher. Modern black activism and the Black Lives Matter movement used it widely as a rallying cry. At other times, the seriousness of the word has been diluted, used facetiously and ironically on social media. And now the word has been co-opted as a political slogan on the right, something Richardson warns could lead to violence, like recent cases in which black people have been shot knocking on a door, for example. It promotes anti-blackness. It promotes stratification. It promotes fear. And that's very dangerous. On the campaign trail, though, there's no sign of the candidates abandoning the word as they continue to use it to galvanize the conservative base around culture war issues. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. Now, an appreciation of a Texas educator and musician who played a vital role in bringing mariachi music out of the nightclubs and into public schools as a musical discipline. Bell Ortiz died recently at the age of 90. Texas Public Radio's Jack Morgan has our story. When Bell Ortiz became a public school music teacher in San Antonio in the early 1950s, she wanted curriculum to reflect the diverse musical cultures of Texas. But this was an era when simply speaking Spanish in front of white teachers might result in students being disciplined. So the idea of teaching mariachi music was fairly radical. To get this type of music into the high schools and into the elementary schools, they told me no, because it was bar music. It was cantina music. And I said, no, it isn't. It's folk music. It's our culture. Ortiz persisted, and in 1970, Lanier High School allowed her to teach one course. The idea began catching on. It was a very exciting time in San Antonio back in the 1970s. Cynthia Munoz says Ortiz's class had a profound impact on her. She says teaching young people how to read music and to perform within a group and on stage paid unexpected benefits. The music filled my heart and it was invigorating. It was exciting. Exciting. It was magical. And I realized for the first time that our culture is more beautiful than I had ever seen before. 
Tens of thousands of students now take mariachi courses in Texas schools. In a 2018 interview, Ortiz said her students gained self-confidence, which kept them focused and in school. The most beautiful thing that they can tell me is when they say, Mrs. O, you taught us these instruments and that you made sure we were in school, that we had scholarships. I said, no, I didn't give them to you. You earned them. In the days before her passing last Wednesday, dozens of mariachi groups made up of former students showed up to her bedside to serenade her. For NPR News, I'm Jack Morgan in San Antonio. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Falden. Upper 80s and mostly sunny today. It grows a bit overcast tonight. Temperatures may dip into the 60s. Low 80s tomorrow and mostly sunny. Right now it's 74 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. WBUR arts and culture reporter, Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A Justice Department letter sent to former President Donald Trump suggests he may soon be indicted on charges related to efforts to overturn the 2020 election. It's Wednesday, July 19th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Biden administration says its new rules have led to a sharp decline in illegal border crossings. We are allowing migrants to claim asylum, but placing what we believe are some common sense conditions on it. But the new rules are being challenged in court today. Also this hour. Someone on some side is going to have to cave because everyone is hurting right now. How strikes in Hollywood are affecting non-unionized industry workers. And breaking down Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's plan to require more affordable units in new developments. This proposal will have an impact. Any changes will have an impact just by creating more units. Mostly sunny in upper 80s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Dangerous heat is back again today in the south and southwest. The National Weather Service says about 80 million people are under some kind of heat caution. Phoenix has broken a record. It's been more than 110 degrees there for the last 19 days in a row. Phoenix Fire Captain Kimberly Quick Ragsdale says firefighters have responded to people in distress. We're seeing consecutive days with temperatures above 110 and uh, all across the valley, our citizens are um, having a difficult time with these temperatures. She spoke to NPR's Morning Edition. Several women from Texas will testify in a state district court today about Texas's abortion ban. They're seeking clarification on a medical emergency exception to the law. 
From member station KUT, Olivia Aldridge reports. Zorowski v. Texas was filed by the Center for Reproductive Rights on behalf of 13 women who were denied abortions amid serious pregnancy complications. Also, two doctors who say the language of the medical exception to Texas's abortion ban is murky and prevents physicians from providing essential medical care. The plaintiffs want the court to create a binding interpretation of the exception that allows physicians to exercise their good-faith judgment. During this week's hearing, they're asking the court to block the state's abortion ban as it applies to pregnancy complications for the duration of the case. The hearing is set to continue through Thursday. For NPR News, I'm Olivia Aldridge in Austin. Russia says a large fire has broken out at a military training ground in the annexed territory of Crimea. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines has details. The Moscow-installed governor in Crimea said the fire occurred near a munitions storage facility in the peninsula's Kirovsky district without addressing the cause of the fire or damage incurred. Online, an unverified video appears to show a large fire, with the sound of ordnance exploding in the distance. Local authorities ordered some 2,000 residents to evacuate from the surrounding area and closed a major highway leading to the nearby Kerch Bridge. That structure, which connects annexed Crimea to mainland Russia, was damaged in an apparent drone attack earlier this week that the Kremlin blamed on Kyiv. Ukrainian officials have neither directly confirmed nor denied those claims. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. South Africa says that Russian President Vladimir Putin will not attend a summit next month in Johannesburg. The International Criminal Court has issued an arrest warrant for Putin. He is accused of war crimes in connection to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. If Putin attended the international summit, South African authorities would be obligated to arrest him. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa had said that arrest obligation would create difficulties for his government. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Lawmakers and staffers on Beacon Hill will have to find another place to work today. An apparent electrical fire at the State House yesterday has forced the closure of the building again today. Boston fire officials say the fire was confined to the basement and no one was hurt. Investigators want to keep the building closed, though, today over concerns about elevated carbon monoxide levels. Local business leaders are looking for solutions to Boston's transportation woes. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports the Boston Chamber of Commerce hosted a conversation yesterday with state transportation officials. Boston Chamber of Commerce President and CEO Jim Rooney says business owners are concerned about road congestion and service disruptions on the MBTA. They're hearing from their employees, they're hearing from their customers about the difficulty of navigating our transportation network. Massachusetts Transportation Secretary Gina Fiendaka and MBTA General Manager Phil Eng acknowledged that the transportation system is in need of serious improvement. They said they are dedicated to creating partnerships with the business community and other stakeholders as they work to make the system better. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is condemning a move by House Republicans to strip $2 million in funding from an LGBTQ plus housing project in the state. The Pride in Hyde Park would provide affordable housing for older LGBTQ plus adults. Presley says the project meets the requirements for funding. Out of more than 2,000 proposals nationwide, 
Two other LGBTQ plus housing initiatives were the only other projects defunded as part of the Republican amendment. The Brookline Public Library is doing away with late fees. The new policy began at the start of this month. Library Director Amanda Hurst believes the move reduces barriers that may prevent people from coming to the library if they have unpaid overdue fines. People may run up a fine, they may be blocked from checking materials out, and then they're unable to bring their fines down so that they can check out items again, and then we just lose them as a patron. Hearst says the Brookline Public Library only collected about $10,000 a year in fines. That money went into the town's general fund. It's 8.06. WBUR supporters include the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. The Red Sox got shut out by the A's 3-0 last night in Oakland. The teams will play again this afternoon. An air quality alert remains in effect for the Worcester area. It'll be mostly sunny today and in the upper 80s, partly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will be in the 60s, sunny again tomorrow and in the 80s. Right now it's 74 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Want some new summer reads on us? Sign up for WBUR's Beach Books newsletter in the month of July, and you could win a $30 gift card to Beacon Hill Books. We're picking from our subscribers each week, so sign up for Beach Books at WBUR.org slash Beach Books. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. The Biden administration says illegal crossings at the U.S.-Mexico border are at historic lows. But critics say some of the reasons why are unlawful. We'll have that story in just a few minutes. But first, former President Donald Trump's legal problems keep getting bigger. Yeah, on Tuesday, he revealed he's been notified he's a target in special counsel Jack Smith's investigation of the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. There are questions about whether this could lead to a third indictment for Trump. And yesterday, Trump's lawyers were in court in Fort Pierce, Florida, on his second indictment. They asked a federal judge to delay his trial on charges of withholding and concealing classified documents until after next year's presidential election. Federal prosecutors want the trial to start in December. NPR's Greg Allen joins us now from Fort Pierce. Hi, Greg. Hi, Leila. Okay, so before we get to what's going on in Florida, let's talk about what Trump is calling a target letter. Does this mean he'll be indicted again, a third indictment, and face more felony charges? It does look like a strong possibility. Mm. Uh, Trump posted this on his website, Truth Social, yesterday. Uh, he said he received word Sunday he's a target in the investigation, that he has four days to appear before the grand jury. The grand jury has been meeting in Washington for some time as part of uh, special counsel Jack Smith's January 6th investigation. But target letters like that, especially for someone like a former president, suggest an indictment will soon follow. On what charges, are, it's not clear yet, but legal observers say they could include obstructing a legal proceeding and conspiracy to defraud the government. All this suggests could be the most serious case yet against the former president. Okay, so you were in court yesterday for a different case where Trump has been indicted. He's charged with willfully withholding and concealing classified documents. What do we know about when that trial will start? Well, that is the question right now. Uh, Lawyers for the former president told U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon they believe the case should be delayed until next year 
after the presidential election, and that's more than a year from now. Mm. They have numerous reasons for that they laid out among them, and one that seemed to carry some weight with the judge is the sheer volume of material that defense lawyers will have to go through. They say they have more than 190,000 emails, 450 gigabytes of data, and more than 1,100 days of surveillance camera footage to go through. They also say that this fits the legal definition of a complex case, which merits a more extended trial schedule. A Trump lawyer, Todd Blanche, told the judge that as a former president and one who's now running again for the nation's highest office, he deserves special consideration. Blanche said, it is intellectually dishonest to stand up in front of this court and say this case is like any other. It is not. Hmm. How did prosecutors react to that? Well, they certainly reject that argument. Uh, Prosecutor David Harbach told the judge, Mr. Trump is not the president. He's a private citizen indicted by a grand jury. Harbach also rejected an assertion by Trump's lawyers that all the publicity and press coverage surrounding it is another reason to delay the trial. He told the judge that all the publicity surrounding Trump is, quote, chronic and almost permanent. Prosecutors want to start the trial in less than five months on December 11th, and lawyers for Trump and his aide, Walt Nauda, who's also indicted in the case, say they can't possibly be ready by then. They told the judge they can't even begin to discuss a possible trial schedule until sometime in November. Any hints from the judge on how she might rule on the start date of the trial? It's what everybody's trying to figure out. A judge Cannon is a Trump appointee. And you may recall that she received a legal rebuke last year from a federal appeals court that struck down a ruling she made that was favorable to Trump. This was in an earlier hearing regarding these classified documents. Up to now, she's been pushing for a speedy trial. She seemed to take note yesterday of the large amount of material that Trump and now his lawyers have to go through. But she also seemed frustrated by their argument that they can't begin to discuss a schedule now. Mm. So she said she'll issue an order soon on an appropriate schedule. NPR's Greg Allen in Fort Pierce, Florida. Thanks, Greg. You're welcome. The number of people crossing the U.S.-Mexico border illegally is lower than it's been in years. The Biden administration says sharp limits on asylum at the border are a big reason why, but its policies are being challenged by immigrant advocates and immigration hardliners. NPR's Joel Rose reports there's a crucial court hearing about the new asylum rules today. Up and down the border, migrants are waiting in camps and cities, roughly 100,000 of them, according to a U.S. government estimate, hoping for a chance to seek asylum. People like Lise, who traveled alone from Venezuela all the way to Nogales, Mexico, just across the border from Arizona. I want to do things legally right, she says. Lise asked us not to use her last name because she doesn't want to endanger her family back in Venezuela. Under the Biden administration's new rules, there is one main legal pathway to seek asylum if you're already at the border through a mobile app called CBP-1. Every day, Lise logs onto her phone, hoping to make an appointment for an interview at a port of entry, the first step toward asking for asylum. Every day, she sees other migrants getting appointments. Those people get to enter the U.S. for their interviews, but not her. When I met Lise in downtown Nogales a few weeks ago, she had been trying for a month with no luck. I feel bad because I'm alone, she says. I feel vulnerable, sad, and overwhelmed being here alone. I don't have anyone telling me it's going to be okay. Be patient. We will get an appointment to enter the U.S. Still, Lise has decided it's better to wait for an appointment than to cross illegally. And she's not alone. The number of migrants crossing the border without authorization has declined sharply in recent months. The Biden administration credits the CBP-1 app and the new border policy that took effect in May. It says if you cross illegally without using the app, 
it's much harder to get asylum. We are allowing migrants to claim asylum, but placing what we believe are some common sense conditions on it. That's Blas Nunez Neto, a top immigration official at the Department of Homeland Security, speaking to Morning Edition in May. Nunez Neto says the Trump administration tried to block access to asylum altogether. Now the Biden administration is trying to restore it, he says, by allowing roughly 40,000 migrants per month to make appointments through the CBP-1 app. What we are really trying to do here is incentivize migrants to use safe, lawful, and orderly pathways. But also, you know, there has to be a consequence at the border for individuals who continue uh, to cross irregularly despite having these options available to them. Nunez Neto argues that approach is working and points to the sharp drop in illegal crossings as proof. But the administration's asylum policies are drawing criticism from both ends of the immigration debate. Immigrant advocates argue the rule is unlawful and that it's creating a bottleneck because the CBP-1 app is the only way that migrants can apply for asylum. Chelsea Sacco is a lawyer with the Florence Project, a nonprofit in Arizona that's helping migrants to understand the new legal landscape. It's really putting people between a rock and a hard place. It's not respecting their rights to seek asylum. It's not giving them a fair process. National advocacy groups filed a legal challenge to the rule the day it took effect. They say it is all but identical to a Trump administration policy that was blocked in court. And they've gone back to the same federal judge in Oakland, California, who ruled in their favor before. The Biden administration disputes that this rule is the same as the Trump-era version. There's a key hearing in that case coming up later today. And that's not the only legal challenge the new asylum rule is facing. There's also a case brought by Republican-led states, arguing the Biden administration is letting too many asylum seekers into the country. When you report that illegal migrants, the, the numbers are down, You, that's, that's a shell game. It's like a magic trick. That's Republican Congressman Clay Higgins of Louisiana at a congressional hearing in June. Higgins and other immigration hardliners say the Biden administration is using the CBP-1 app to put a new name on what is roughly the same flow of migrants as before, creating a so-called legal pathway that Congress never intended. This executive branch has redefined what an illegal entry is. The White House insists it's on solid legal ground. But Homeland Security officials acknowledge that legal fights over asylum are likely to continue, even if the judge in today's hearing ultimately rules in their favor. Joel Rose, NPR News, Nogales, Mexico. Some of the film and TV industry's biggest stars, like Rachel McAdams, Kevin Bacon, and Bette Midler, join their fellow actors and writers on the combined picket lines as the strike that has shut down movie production across the country continues. In Georgia, one of the top states for movie making, non-union workers are feeling the strike's impact too. Marlon Hyde from member station WABE in Atlanta has this report. On days when she works on set, Tyra Rogers gets up at the crack of dawn to get actors camera ready. She's a makeup artist who started working with film productions in Atlanta last fall. I wrapped my last film um, the beginning of June. Um, So it's been about four weeks, uh, which leads me to believe this is now going to be inconsistent. (laughs) It was good money, but she's not yet in a union. So she's working for a dentist's office and hopes that a deal to end the strike will come soon. Someone on some side is going to have to cave because everyone is hurting right now. Rogers is one of an estimated 20,000 Georgia film workers. 4,000 of them are sag after members, according to the union. Kate Fortmuller teaches entertainment and media studies at the University of Georgia. She says with productions here mostly shut down, these non-union workers are hit the hardest. They can't necessarily wait out the strike 
to then continue trying to break in. So that might lead them to pick a new career, try something else. Georgia has become a major hub for film productions because it offers lucrative, unlimited tax credits. And state officials also tout the low unionization as a reason to film here. Lewis Toms is a carpenter and a background actor. He moved here from Florida for a chance to work in the film industry. It's been pretty dry over the last few weeks. You know, I'm in a few Facebook groups um, since I'm not in the union or anything like that, trying to find people for like indie work kind of stuff, looking for positions to be filled. And even places like that, you know, it's, I've noticed way more people asking for work than people seeking, um, seeking workers. Toms says he supports the strike because in the end, non-union members will benefit as well from a new contract. It's interesting to see people are worried, but also at the same time, you know, standing with them. The actors and writers on strike are looking for improved streaming residuals, better wages, better working conditions, and an assurance that AI will not take their jobs. For NPR News, I'm Marlon Hyde in Atlanta. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, Phoenix has broken the national record for consecutive days of temperatures of at least 110 degrees. Officials there are struggling to help people deal with the heat. It's 819. The Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August. So if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't drive. The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted Blue Line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service. For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit WBUR.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates. The main detour for drivers getting around the closure of the Sumner Tunnel is the Ted Williams Tunnel. Right now, it's a half-hour trip from Boardman Street in East Boston to 93. Delays on Route 1 south to get over the Tobin Bridge begin at Route 60. As you heard Lisa say there, get advice on getting around the closure at WBUR.org. Mostly sunny today with a high near 88. Tonight, it grows partly cloudy and temperatures fall to lows around 68. Tomorrow, mostly sunny again with a high near 80. Right now it's 75 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. 
From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Martinez. An American soldier who was serving a rotation in South Korea has crossed the border into North Korea. It's not known whether Army Private Travis King intended to defect. He was in the process of being sent back to the U.S. after being detained for assault and was escorted as far as the airport, but he never got on a plane. Then wearing civilian clothes, King joined a tour of a border town where U.S. authorities say he willingly crossed the heavily guarded military demarcation line. King is not the first American who has crossed into North Korea. For more on this, we're joined by historian Eric Scott. He's the author of the book Defectors, How the Illicit Flight of Soviet Citizens Built the Borders of the Cold War World. Eric, we hear lots of stories about people from North Korea attempting to leave their country, but how often do Americans or people from somewhere else try to defect into North Korea? That's exactly right. Uh, When we think of defections, uh, we're thinking of the thousands of people who have fled from North Korea to the south, Uh, But there have been a handful of people who have fled in the opposite direction. And although this is a very small number, they um, become incredibly prominent in terms of the propaganda use uh, that the North Koreans employ them for. Um, When the armistice was signed between the North and the South, um, there were about 20 U.S. soldiers who chose to remain in China. And then again in the 60s, there were about seven U.S. soldiers who crossed over to to the other side. Um, The last case was in 1982, so this is the first time we have a U.S. soldier crossing over uh, in over 40 years. Why might a soldier do that? Well, the complications of defectors, as I've shown in my book and as was revealed to me when I was doing my research, are really quite complicated. Although we think of defection as a political choice, as a choice from one ideology uh, over the other, the motivations are often very mixed. In some cases, they face problems at home. In some cases, they face disciplinary issues, as seems to be the case with Travis King. In some cases, they did it on a whim. And what's remarkable about it is that through this act, although it's a very dangerous one and has very serious consequences, they're catapulted uh, from relative unknowns into international celebrities of a sort that everyone is talking about. Uh, almost all the U.S. soldiers that have crossed over. Yeah, we should say that we don't know for a fact that King actually defected, but uh, still, that would be quite a whim to try something like that. How does North Korea typically treat service members who cross? Um, Well, the Koreans, the North Korean, uh, likely have King in custody. Um, They're likely interrogating him. They may be very carefully screening him to determine what they're going to do with him. They have, in the past, both imprisoned defectors, but also used them uh, for propaganda, uh, having them star in films, using them either as themselves in these films or as American uh, soldiers uh, to portray the U.S. side in an unflattering light. And one more thing really quick. If the U.S. uh, winds up getting him back, how does the U.S. typically treat defectors if that indeed is what he did? So the U.S. side treats us very seriously. And... um, It's really interesting who gets to determine who is a defector, whether it's the state this person leaves or the state they go to or the media uh, that frames this as a story. But if the U.S. side treats this as a defection, King will be facing charges of desertion uh, as well as the existing charges he already had. 
Okay, that's historian Eric Scott. He's the author of the book Defectors, How the Illicit Flight of Soviet Citizens Built the Borders of the Cold War World. Eric, thanks. Uh, Great to be here. Thank you. For the past six months, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville has been blocking confirmation of high-ranking military personnel. He says he objects to a Pentagon policy which grants military personnel leave and travel expenses to get an abortion. In Washington, it's created frustration and gridlock, but in his home state, Tuberville has strong support. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett checked in on one local GOP meeting. It's 6 p.m. on Monday night in Ozark, a small farming city in South Alabama. Around tables at the Hoppergrass restaurant, about 25 men and women, all white and in their mid-60s, gather for the monthly Dale County GOP meeting. After the Pledge of Allegiance, the floor is open. First to speak is Layella Walding. The silver-haired senior told me that outside of an election year, the meetings tend to be quiet. Tonight, she's ready to get the crowd fired up. Have you been hearing about Tommy Turberville, our senator? He's getting a lot of pressure now because he's not... Walding urges the room to support Tuberville and shield him from the blowback he's getting. Alabama has one of the country's strictest abortion laws and six military facilities. One of them, Fort Rucker, is 10 miles from Ozark. Walding says female personnel, like those at Fort Rucker, have been on her mind. I can identify with the lady that does not want to have an abortion, but in the military and making a career of it. Walding is against abortion rights and argues that women in the military may opt for an abortion to keep their career on track. So not paying for travel and giving time off would be a discouragement. In Washington, President Biden, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell have all voiced frustration with Tuberville's hold. But at the Hoppergrass, it's a different story. We actually have someone that stands up for what's right, uh, regardless of the cost. Norman Horton doesn't believe Tuberville's block is harming the military. He says his senator is right by insisting the Hyde Amendment that bans federal funding for abortion procedures applies in this case. We support uh, someone that actually stands up for the rule of law. And unfortunately, it's become the exception, not the rule. But we love him. Virginia Howard also loves Tuberville. And she's not happy with the lack of support from other GOP colleagues, including Alabama's other Republican senator, Katie Britt. I'm personally sorry that our junior senator is not supporting him. There is agreement in the room that Tuberville is under a lot of pressure. But however long that lasts, these members are behind him. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Ozark, Alabama. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. We get the details on Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's proposal to require more affordable units in new construction. It's 829. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind if you miss something. Find it in your app store today. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com and Museum of Science. Maneuver through vibrant, mind-bending illusions, 3D puzzles, and kinetic play at the new traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games. Tickets at MOS.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A U.S. Army spokesman says Army Private Travis King is the American being held in North Korea. King was in civilian clothing and with a tour group in a border village on the South Korean side yesterday when witnesses say he started running to the north. New Zealander Sarah Leslie was part of that tour group along with her father. She says U.S. and South Korean soldiers tried to stop King. They didn't catch him. He was... We were pretty close to the border, and it would have been pretty hard to stop him from that range. But yeah, he was going he was going pretty fast. Leslie was speaking to Television New Zealand. King is 23 years old. Officials say he's with the Army's 1st Armored Division and was scheduled to return home to Fort Bliss in Texas on Monday. King spent two months in a South Korean prison reportedly for assault. The head of Britain's Foreign Intelligence Service, MI6, is urging Russians opposed to the war in Ukraine to work with his agency. Villa Marx has more. Richard Moore's second speech in the role, given at the British Embassy in Prague, highlighted similarities between Russia's aggression in Ukraine and the USSR's actions in the Prague Spring of 1968, when tanks were sent to stamp out criticism. He invited Russians to work with MI6, saying they were likely appalled by the, quote, venality, infighting and callous incompetence of their leaders. Dow futures are down 12 points ahead of the open on Wall Street. This is NPR News. Injuries and more damage are being reported in Ukraine's southern port city of Odessa after a second consecutive night of Russian airstrikes. Officials in Ukraine say dozens of missiles and drones were launched at Odessa, hitting grain and oil terminals. Debris from those that were shot down damaged residential buildings and warehouses. Farmers in Vermont say last week's flooding in the state caused heavy crop losses. Vermont Public's Michaela LaFrac says dozens of farmers have filed for disaster aid. Much of Vermont's most fertile farmland lies in river valleys. When the rains came and rivers overflowed their banks last week, countless fields, pastures, barns and greenhouses were inundated with contaminated water and mud. Grace O'Dell leads the Northeast Organic Farming Association of Vermont. She estimates about 100 farmers have already filed paperwork with them, asking for financial help. Some people experienced complete crop loss. Others experienced 75 percent, 50, 25 percent, or their markets were completely impacted or their road washed away. State officials say they're working with the U.S. Department of Agriculture and Vermont's congressional delegation to make federal relief money available to farmers. For NPR News, I'm Michaela LaFrac in Colchester. Extreme heat is expected today from California to Georgia. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
Business leaders in Alston are feeling the effects of the shutdown of the Green Line's B branch. The entire line is shut down between Boston College and Kenmore Square. Crews are replacing a half mile of track in Packard's Corner. That's also caused some road closures. Alex Cornaccini is the executive director of Alston Village Main Streets. He's reminding people that stores and restaurants in the area are still open for business while the work is being done. He recommends people walk or bike to them if they can. There's a lot of congestion from vehicles and cars and buses and trucks alike, but for pedestrians and for cyclists, it seems pretty unimpeded. T officials say the shutdown will last through next Friday. $200 million to fix potholds on local roads is tied up on Beacon Hill. House and Senate lawmakers approved the money back in March, but a compromise bill is still being worked on. Republican leadership tells the Eagle Tribune that the money needs to be sent to cities and towns soon so they can do construction in the warmer weather. Massachusetts officials want swimmers to be cautious in the water this summer. They say June and July have set records for the number of bacteria advisories issued by the Department of Environmental Services. As of today, nearly 60 beaches across the state have bacteria notices. That list includes Lovell's Pond in Barnstable, Constitution Beach in East Boston, and Houghton's Pond in Milton. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gentle Giant Moving and Storage, employing athletes since 1980, now hiring. Gentle Giant is an equal opportunity employer. GentleGiant.com slash careers. The Red Sox lost to the A's 3-0 last night in Oakland. The two teams will play the rubber match of their series this afternoon. An air quality alert remains in effect for the Worcester area today. We'll have mostly clear skies and high temperatures in the upper 80s. Tonight, clouds move in and it dips into the 60s. Mostly sunny tomorrow with highs in the low 80s. It's 76 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com slash wilderness. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. Israel's President Isaac Herzog is set to address a joint meeting of Congress today, a day after the House passed a bipartisan resolution in support of the state of Israel. The resolution was drafted after the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Pramila Jayapal, lashed out over Israel's treatment of Palestinians calling Israel racist. She later apologized and said she was referring only to the policies of the current right-wing government. Herzog's visit also coincides with the decision by Israel's parliament to take a final Final vote next week on judicial restrictions that have drawn massive street protests throughout Israel. To get at the context around this visit, we're turning to Joseph Fetterman of the Associated Press in Jerusalem. Good morning, Joseph. Good morning. So I want to start with these House Democrats that are going to boycott Herzog's speech to protest Israel's treatment of Palestinians. How is this being received in Israel? I think people are looking at the big picture. You mentioned this vote that was passed, Mm -hmm. uh, this resolution that was passed, and it was overwhelming. 
bipartisan support in favor of Israel. So I think people are trying to look at the positive. You know, that said, uh, there are some underlying issues here, and opinion polls show that Israel is becoming increasingly uh, a partisan issue in Washington, with Republicans more in favor of supporting Israel than Democrats, and older Democrats, establishment Democrats, more strongly favoring Israel over the younger generation. So you see that in this vote with the progressive wing voting against the resolution and threatening uh, to stay away from the speech today. Now, President Herzog already visited with President Biden and Secretary of State Antony Blinken. What do we know about those meetings? We've seen in the New York Times today extraordinary statement uh, from the president being very critical uh, of what's going on here in Israel. What I think we will see today, what I expect to see based on my talks with the president's office, mm -hmm. is that the president is going to try to glance over uh, these differences. He's going to try to stress the positive, the deep years of uh, friendship, this bipartisan support that we just mentioned, uh, Israel's uh, security uh, challenges, but that will be lurking uh, in the background. And you have to wonder, uh, you know, these meetings are very polite out in public, but you have right. to wonder what sort of messages are being delivered behind the scenes and what sorts of messages they want uh, Herzog, the president, to deliver back to the prime minister. Now, this is coming, as you mentioned, among higher tensions with the U.S. Biden has referred to ministers in Netanyahu's government as extremists, criticized the expansion of illegal settlements in the occupied West Bank. But he is meeting, or he has met, with Herzog and he's invited Netanyahu. What does this say about the relationship between the U.S. and Israel? Well, one important thing, this meeting with Herzog was planned actually last year, long before the current Israeli government even took office. Mm -hmm. um, this is uh, meant to celebrate Israel's 75th uh, anniversary of independence. Um, so it really is not reflective of uh, the White House's Israeli government. You mentioned they've been, they've been talking about uh, extremist elements of this uh, government. I think it's an issue. Biden has repeatedly hinted mm -hmm. that it's an issue. Joseph Fetterman is the Associated Press News Director for Israel and the Palestinian Territories. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Phoenix, Arizona broke a record Tuesday with 19 consecutive days of temperatures reaching 110 degrees or more. Firefighters have been really busy helping people suffering from the heat. And here to tell us all about it is Phoenix Fire Captain Kimberly Quick Ragsdale. Captain, what does it feel like to be in Phoenix the last few weeks? It's been very challenging on us firefighters. It's been extremely hot. Um, we're seeing consecutive days with temperatures above 110 and uh, all across the valley, our citizens are um, having a difficult time with these temperatures. And if you're going on a call that's not fire related, are the firefighters not wearing all that gear at least? Just the nature of our job requires us to work outside in the elements. We wear heavy, thick gear, whether it's EMS equipment, uh, we do mountain rescues, and then we have our heavy firefighter turnouts. So we're wearing, you know, gear no matter what the call is. If it's an EMS call, we're wearing uh, brush pants, which are a little bit of a thinner pant, uh, heavy steel toe boots, and then we have our EMS gloves and, and vests. And so you know, we're out in the elements all the time in this heat. Loaded down either way. How, how many heat-related yes. calls is your department getting? So we're seeing an uptick from last year of about 20%. Um, already this year, from July 1st to July 16th, we're seeing um, about 418 heat-related calls. Wow. And how are you able to handle all those calls? 
So the city of Phoenix, we have a bunch of resources. We know the heat's coming every year. Um, we prepare our firefighters by getting them acclimated to the heat, uh, staying hydrated and limiting, you know, our activities during midday um, and, and limiting, you know, our training. So we're very prepared for this. And, uh, you know, the best thing right now is to just seek shelter and, and shade and stay inside when, it, when you can. Phoenix is just a hot place. I, I think everyone knows that. Uh, for you, for you, Captain, though, I mean, what temperatures does it have to get where you're thinking, okay, this is going to be uncomfortable? So, you know, I think for for the valley, that the trigger is about 105, right? 105. Um, you know, in the morning here at, at Phoenix Fire, we get an overhead announcement stating that the temperature is, you know, 105, and to stay hydrated, stay indoors, limit physical activity. So I would I would say about 105 and, and creeping on up, we start, you know, taking notice. So like 104, so ah, it's still okay. We're still under the <laughs> under the threshold. Right. Yeah. Um, what advice do you have for people in Phoenix or maybe even just across the entire Southwest to try and cope with this extreme heat? Because still, people do make some really seemingly dumb mistakes when they go outside in this kind of heat. Right. Absolutely. You know, the heat kind of sneaks up on you. You think, oh, I can handle it. But we're telling people, you know, really listen to the warnings. Um, you know, don't go out hiking when it when it's 118 degrees. Um, just listen to your body. Take care of yourself. Stay hydrated. Limit physical activities. Um, wear cool, lightweight, loose clothing. Check on the most vulnerable populations right now. We have unsheltered people, we have the homeless, and then also young children cannot tell you when they're getting hot. That's Captain Kimberly Quick Ragsdale with the Phoenix Fire Department. Thank you very much, Captain. Thank you. This afternoon on All Things Considered, New Jersey schools just wrapped up a year of teaching climate change, what the students learn. You can listen wherever you are, on your phone, your computer, your smart speaker, or on your reliable radio. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report breaks down new data on home builder confidence. The numbers show the mood among housing developers nationwide continues to improve. Upper 80s today under mostly sunny skies. It turns mostly cloudy tonight and falls into the 60s. A bit cooler tomorrow in the low 80s and mostly sunny. Right now it's 77 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, a Cambridge-based venture capital firm is making a major investment into the future of medicine. Flagship Pioneering is partnering with the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer for a $100 million investment into potential new drugs. The deal aims to create 10 new therapies for areas including internal medicine, oncology, and infectious disease. 
A Needham sub shop that specializes in making jumbo sandwiches is soon closing for good. Mighty Subs is known for its slogan, Our Small is Their Large. The shop's owners say they're ready to retire after more than 30 years in business. Mighty Subs will shut down next Friday. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's plan to increase the number of affordable units and new developments is now headed to the city council after being approved by the Boston Planning and Development Agency Board. The proposal would up the city's requirement for affordable units and new construction from 13 percent to 17 percent. Developers say that would stall construction. Advocates say it doesn't go far enough. Boston University lecturer Felix Zemmel studies affordable housing and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. So we're in the midst of a housing crisis with many people really struggling to find affordable places to live. What impact do you think this proposal would really have if it passes? This proposal will have an impact. Any changes will have an impact just by creating more units. We're in such a need for affordable housing in the greater Boston area. I think HUD, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, has been saying that we are well below our demand for at least a decade now and projected going into the future for housing in general and affordable housing especially. As I mentioned, advocates say this proposal doesn't go far enough. Do you think that's the case? So I can see both sides of the argument. A lot of the advocates are saying it's not going far enough because, for example, this is providing that 17% that you mentioned is targeting families with an income of 60% of the area median income, which for a family of four is, I believe, somewhere in the 60s to low 70s. There's a very large pool of people in that income bracket advocates a lot of what they've been saying is that that should be going to the 40 percent area median income which would target more of the BIPOC population and the families in much greater need and much greater risk of housing instability and it also gives them more of a chance of getting that housing if that number is lowered to that 40% level. On the other side, developers claim this proposal would mean lenders stop funding big projects. Do you see that happening? What I see happening is statewide projects have been having much more difficulty being funded. The cost of construction are much higher than they were pre-pandemic, and they were very high pre-pandemic as well due to um, labor shortages, due to challenges getting financing and difficulty getting raw materials. So I can definitely see the arguments from the developer's side, and I think that they're valid arguments. Are there other ways we should be thinking about affordable housing right now? We really need to think about overall zoning and zoning reforms so that we can provide trade-offs, for example, greater density. And then if you allow for greater density or less parking, 
then developers have shown that they are very willing partners to work for greater affordable housing. But they need their pro formas to work. Boston University lecturer Felix Zemmel studies affordable housing and public policy. Thank you so much for helping us understand this issue. Thank you. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on the American soldier who ran across the border into North Korea and what the head of the British intelligence service, MI6, has to say about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's 8.49. July 19th marks 60 years since civil rights marchers took to the streets of America's Georgia to protest segregation. After being arrested, one group of black girls disappeared for 45 days. We did a lot of stuff to pass the time away. We sang freedom songs. We prayed. We did little hand games and we talked. Some kids cried. Hear that story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BioNova Scientific, GMP Manufacturing Services for Biologics, BioNovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Former President Donald Trump may soon be indicted on charges related to efforts to overturn the 2020 election after he received a letter from the Justice Department saying that he was the target of an investigation. The U.N. is criticizing a controversial plan in Britain that would send migrants without documentation to countries like Rwanda. Some members of Congress plan to boycott a visit today from Israel's president. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. WBUR supporters include Circus Smirkus, New England's traveling youth circus, in Marshfield July 21st to 22nd and Waltham July 27th to 30th. Tickets at Smirkus.org. Mostly sunny in upper 80s today, mostly cloudy in upper 60s tonight, tomorrow mostly sunny and low 80s. Right now it's 77 degrees in Boston. When renting a place to live is like buying a ticket to a concert full of extra charges that pile up in the end. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. And by the Glassdoor app, where professionals share advice and talk about work and life anonymously. Conversations are happening within companies and in thousands of communities on the new Glassdoor app. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. The White House is focused this morning on helping renters avoid surprises when arranging a new place to live. And after setbacks in court, the administration has news about how it will review corporate mergers and acquisitions to try to protect consumers. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more. Yeah, David, a flurry of announcements. Let's start with rental fees. The administration says it's calling for price transparency. 
similar to recent actions taken with airline fares and tickets to live events to reduce what the administration calls junk fees. Uh, the White House says three major online rental platforms are participating in this latest effort, Zillow, Apartments.com, and AffordableHousing.com. They will start providing the total cost of renting an apartment. That includes upfront costs such as application fees, as well as what may be hidden monthly fees for things like paying rent online. And the idea is that consumers can then more accurately comparison shop because they'll have the total price of a listing. Right. And the administration also today proposing new guidelines for corporate mergers. Yeah. And the timing is interesting because the FTC and the Justice Department just lost a big fight to prevent the tie up of Microsoft and video game maker Activision Blizzard. And there has been some criticism from conservative and business circles that the administration has been too heavy handed, perhaps, in how it's scrutinized mergers. Still, the FTC and Justice Department this morning released a draft update of the federal government's merger guidelines. This was expected, and the administration says the changes better reflect a modern economy. So, for example, the rules say a merger should not eliminate a potential entrant into a concentrated market. They also address how mergers may affect the labor market, saying they may be illegal if they reduce competition for workers. All right, Nova Safo, thank you very much. We're following the news this week that Russia has declined to renew a deal that had allowed Ukraine to export grain through the Black Sea. The World Trade Organization is urging other countries to keep their own food exports going so more people don't go hungry. Here's the WTO's Director General, Lingozi Okonjo Iwela. What typically happens when you have a situation like this is that countries react by trying to withhold their own food and they put export restrictions on them. And that just exacerbates the problem. That's what exactly happened in the 2008-2009 food crisis and at the beginning of the food crisis here with the war in Ukraine. So what we can do is to uh, tell our members precisely not to do that. Wheat future prices are up 4.7% on Chicago markets this morning. Stocks Dow and S&P futures are little changed. NASDAQ futures are up two-tenths percent now, powered in part by the buzz over artificial intelligence. That NASDAQ index is up 38% year-to-date. Meta, the Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp parent, has announced its new AI technology that it will open source, give away free. It'll compete directly with OpenAI's ChatGPT. Now, the meta one is called Llama. Remember, that word has two L's. It's from the generic term for these things, large language models. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Grammarly, offering Grammarly business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at Grammarly.com business. And by Indeed, a hiring solution that helps businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com hire. New data show that people running companies that build housing are in a more upbeat mood. Pandemic distortions in supplies of things like lumber and AC parts have evened out, and there's very strong demand and a low supply of houses and apartments for sale, and some big builders have figured out a way to keep the sting out of higher mortgage rates. Ali Budner has that. 
It can be difficult to buy an existing home in today's tight real estate market, but it's a different story in the market for newly constructed homes. Yeah, the housing market is really a tale of two markets right now. Danielle Hale is chief economist at Realtor.com. Because of the lack of existing homes for sale, buyers who are looking for options are often finding them among new construction. Hale says usually new homes make up about 10 to 15 percent of the housing market overall, but they're up to almost a third. New home sales are close to the highest share of the market that they've been in probably more than a decade. People get frustrated. There's nothing good out there. They see this beautiful new home. They go, OK, we're going in. Logan Motoshami is the lead analyst for the news site Housing Wire. He says it's more than just lopsided inventory issues at play here. Home builders have the flexibility to subsidize mortgage rates for buyers. They're saying, hey, listen, we could get you under 6% mortgage rates all day long. Why are you going to waste your time, you know, fighting in a low inventory market with 7% rates? And it seems to be working. Home builder confidence has been trending up every month of this year. At least in the near-term, builders, I think, are cautiously optimistic. Robert Dietz is chief economist for the National Association of Home Builders. He says builders do have some problems. Including getting access to appliances and electrical transformers and the rising price of some kinds of building material costs, including concrete and wood products. And Dietz says with low unemployment levels, there's also a shortage of skilled labor in the construction industry. But he's not too concerned. New home sales are up 20% compared to where they were a year ago. And the industry is starting to reach out to younger, lower-income buyers by offering some new homes at $300,000 or less. That is an excellent way to expand the new construction market to younger set of households, renters who are aspiring to become first-time home buyers. The trick is finding a way to make it all budget out. For now, home builders are making it work and feeling pretty good about it. I'm Ali Budner for Marketplace. The national average 30-year fixed mortgage rate is at 6.88%, according to the Mortgage News Daily's calculation. I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. Upper 80s and mostly sunny today. It grows a bit overcast tonight. Temperatures may dip into the 60s. Low 80s tomorrow and mostly sunny. Right now it's 77 degrees in Boston and the BBC is coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum. Presenting As We Rise, photography from the Black Atlantic. On view now. More at PEM.org. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.